Dear Hank and John, or as I like to think of it, Dear Hank and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers and sometimes just one brother answer your questions, give you DB's advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, did you know the following true fact mathematicians have been aware of and obsessed with for many, many years is that four is actually in love with five, but is incapable of asking five out on a date. And they've been trying to figure this out for centuries. And a scientist uh, slash mathematician was recently able to finally get to the bottom of why four will never ask five out on a date. And it turns out it's because four is two squared Four is two squared. <sighs> I've been wanting to tell that one for a while, and I just couldn't subject John to it. So I just subjected me to it and also all of you. I feel like I, I feel like I need to explain it. Four is two squared, and also it sounds like four is too scared. Is it's not very good. It's not very good. Anyway, John, right now, as we record this, you just called me, is in a fake Chuck E. Cheese as they record and create the movie Turtles All the Way Down. So he was frantically trying to figure out how can I make Dear Hank and John today? How can I get away? How can I get to the hotel room? And I was like, John, look, I took the last like four weeks off. You can take one week off. But then I was like, I feel bad about this because I can't take five weeks off in a row. And John did a whole Dear Hank and John all by himself. And I think I was skeptical. I was skeptical going into that episode, and I think he did a fantastic job. I'm proud of him. It seemed like it was really hard, and he worked really hard on it, and so I have decided to attempt to do this as well. And one of the things that I thought was just a marvelous innovation from John was when he said to Tuna to give a little music. And so I would like Tuna, for you to give me a little music. Give me something that sounds like it was made, and I'm sorry about this, under the ocean. Just some, some like, it has underwater, we're now in an underwater ocean vibe, everybody. Welcome to the underwater ocean vibe. It's just Dear Hank. And we're vibing, we're chilling under the water. Just to imagine, you can still breathe. Maybe you got scuba gear. Maybe you're a fish. Maybe you're a sperm whale and you can hold your breath for hours and hours. And you are just down there in the beautiful darkness, having a little bit of peace, uh, feeling not overwhelmed by the, the scale of your surroundings, but comfortable in your in your sort of competent confidence. Your confident competence. There's nothing better than confident competence. Imagine, and you can't hear the motorcycle that just started up in the alley. You can't hear that. Probably. You probably can. I can. That's not a that's not a motorcycle. That is a squid. It's that's what squids sound like to sperm whales. And it's a lovely little noise and you're just chilling. It's a nice time to take a deep breath and not worry about everything that you have to worry about just for a moment. And then you can move on to having to worry about stuff during the part where we move on from the lovely music that Tuna, underwater music that Tuna played for us to some questions from our listeners. And I'm mostly going to do science questions, but I'm going to start from one that's not a science question. It comes from Darcy, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I want a soda stream, and they are having a Mother's Day promotion and offering 20% off. Am I allowed to use the promo code MOM20 even though I am not a mother and it is not a gift for a mother? Arrive, Darcy. Darcy. Arrive, Darcy. Arrive, Darcy. Arrive, Arrivederci. 
Uh, that one's been done before. Is this the same Darcy? Is that Darcy again, or does Darcy just know? I think Darcy's a cute name. I had, just had a friend who had a child, and one, uh, twins, and one of them was Darcy. So I love that. I love, I hope it's all based on Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, can you use the Mom 20? Yes. Yes. I don't think that this is a moral um, statement from me, I don't think that I'm that I'm making a moral judgment on the world to say that it's fine to use the promo code MOM20, whether or not a mom is involved in the transaction with SodaStream. I will say I'm a SodaStream user myself. It is the appliance in my house that gets the most use. Uh, luckily, my local grocery store exchanges cartridges, which is good because I go through them pretty quick. I'm a SodaStream fiend, and I'm not allowed. To, you can Google this. On, this is how much of a fan of SodaStream I am. Google Google the following on YouTube. Google it on YouTube. SodaStream, get busy with the fizzy, which was their 1980s slogan. And you can watch um, some like, do you remember the movie Cocktail with Tom Cruise? You can watch some cocktail action where they're flipping the soda bottles around and rapping in a suburban home in the 80s about SodaStream. And I'm not going to do the rap. I'm not going to do that, but I am. I don't know. Is this too much to ask? I'll send it to you, Tuna. I'm going to download the audio file and I'm going to send it to you so you don't have to do that, all that work so that you can now hear this jingle. It's actually from 1993. Uh, you're not going to get the full impression because you're not going to see their amazing 1993 outfits. And I believe this was from the UK. I don't think they ever ran adverts in the US. Anyway, here it is. You are going to get to listen to the entire 30 seconds of the SodaStream jingle from 1993. It's soda stream, so get busy with the fizzy. Create a fizzy flavor with water from the tap. Press the magic button and shake it like that. Soda stream, so get busy with the fizzy. Cola, lemonade, cherry, and orange. It's soda stream, so get busy with the fizzy. Make up to one liter of your favorite fizzy flavor. Soda stream, get busy with the fizzy. I mean, when it's just me, I feel like, yeah, I have to do a little something extra. Uh, because you're going to get very tired of my voice. And so instead you got that, which is, I mean, 1993, I was 13 years old. It seems uh, like a long time ago, but to many people watching, it seems unreachably long ago because you're a full adult and that was before you were born. Um, so like, like a full adult, like you're 29 years old. It's fine. It's fine. It happens to us all. We move through our... We, this is the natural state of things. We moved... Anyway, In you are allowed to... So the coupon code is not there to say thank you to moms. That's not what coupon codes are. That's, is, that's not what the, the purpose the coupon code is serving. The coupon code is to get you to buy a soda stream. And it has worked because now you're like, ah, I will finally buy the soda stream and, and maybe you wouldn't. You can't say for sure. Maybe you wouldn't have if you didn't have that coupon code. And now you do. And so you did it. And you saved that money. And it's good. And also, SodaStream has you inside its ecosystem. And they're going to be happy to have you there getting refills of your SodaStream containers. And maybe even buying their syrups, which I'll tell you, you probably shouldn't do. My favorite thing to put inside of a SodaStream, my absolute favorite thing, is just a little bit of orange juice. The orange juice concentrate, I get the concentrated stuff from the store, put a little bit of that in my soda stream, and it's just delicious. It's refreshing. It's natural. It's lovely. 
and everybody wins except for you know the methane that was burned to and released carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in order to concentrate the orange juice but if that hadn't happened they would have had to ship more orange juice like it would take more volume and more weight to ship it to my grocery store so is the cold chain have a, a bigger impact when it's all the way frozen or when it's just refrigerated? It's hard to, to know. It's very difficult to be a person in this. Let's just go back underwater. Let's spend a little bit more time with this nice underwatery music that Tuna has gotten for us. I'm going to imagine now that I am a deep sea octopus, like a blanket octopus or a Dumbo octopus. And, and I have a sort of control over not just the movement of my body, but the shape of my body. And that I can make my skin expand uh, to scare away predators or to enclose potential food items. That all of my limbs aren't just things that I control, but they all have their own interconnected nervous systems. They can make decisions. They can almost on the edge of having thoughts of their own. So I am not just a single organism, but a kind of distributed nervous web of, of, of sensation and action and thought. And all of these different parts of me communicate with each other to create an organism at peace with all of its parts and where it knows exactly how it should be in these moments under the sea, in the deep, the deep, deep sea, um, living a life that... Uh, I, I, that, that humans can have no effect on. Uh, it, there, there are still places on this earth where basically no human effect can reach, and, and that, that is the place where, where we imagine ourselves to be in this moment. Anyway, we're going to go on to another question from our listeners. This one comes from Lily and Ivy, who ask, Dear Hank, just me, we found the corner of a piece of a $20 bill on the ground at school. And that led us to the question, what percentage of a dollar bill is necessary to spend it? Money doesn't grow on trees and neither do we, Lily and Ivy. Though uh, both of you are plants. Lily, Ivy, this is actually well communicated by the uh, the, the mint, uh, the people who control money in the US. If you have any more than 50% of a of a paper bill, you can take that to the bank and they will give you in exchange a piece, a, a full piece. If you have 49%, they will not do that. Uh, th- though I will get to some exe- exceptions. So you give it to them and then they, then they give you your money. Uh, but you cannot take that to the store and spend it. They'll be like, I don't want to deal with that. You, you, you figure that out. That's on you now. So the bank will do this for you, but there are situations in which you could like have half of like more than half of the bill destroyed where you can still exchange it, but you can't do that at a bank. So if you like burned half of like more than half of it, they'll be like, okay, well, there's not like another half sitting out there somewhere, but then couldn't you just like cut it in half and then like burn half and then the other half? Probably this is why they make you go to like a special, like through a special circumstance. And like, maybe this happens when many hundred dollar bills are somewhat burned and you can sort of go in and be like, I swear, here are the pieces of the ones that I have. Uh, 
because otherwise it wouldn't be worth it. So I think that that's the situation. But there are two weird exceptions that I think are very interesting. One, if you have a piece of money that has been contaminated, there's also a whole procedure that you go through. So if you think that your money has like Ebola on it, the Mint has a whole procedure for you to get new money and to destroy the money that you think might be dangerous uh, and covered in human pathogens, which, of course, they all are to some extent, uh, unless they're brand new. Everything's covered in human pathogens. This is why our immune systems are so wonderful. And then also, if you have a coin that has been destroyed, this is the weirdest thing to me, and it's what it says on their website. That's not money anymore. You can't take a nickel and be like, ah, this got broken. I need you to, I need the U.S. Mint to give me a new not broken nickel. It's like disfigured or cut in half or something. They're like, no, that's just metal now. And so they will buy it for the cost of the metal, not the value of the coin, which is exceptionally weird because for pennies and nickels, that value is actually more than the cost than like the value of a penny or nickel. So you get more money for a destroyed nickel than you would for a normal one. Now, if you destroy a bunch of nickels, I think they'll catch on pretty quick, and that is illegal. So you can't do this on purpose, um, but you can, apparently, if you if your nickel gets accidentally mangled, you can go and get seven cents for it from the U.S. Mint, which is wild to me. Anyway, that's the story. 51%, like any more than 50%, and you can, you can use your dollar, uh, but you can't use it. You have to go to the bank and get it exchanged. John, this next question comes from Kira, who asks, Dear Hank and John, lately I've been playing a point-and-click video game called The Dark Side Detective, and it has an interesting cursor design. It looks much like the standard mouse cursor does, except it's perfectly vertical instead of slightly tilted. And I hate it. I assume this is because I've been conditioned to like the tilted cursor, since it's what I normally see, but it made me wonder, why is the standard cursor tilted? Who came up with that design in the first place? Best wishes, Kira. Oh, this was fascinating to research. Okay, so uh, Kira, in her actual question, asked me, uh, said which way that the cursor was tilted, and I've been exposed to this, and so now I know, and also I'm looking at my computer. So if you're not looking at a computer right now, can you picture the direction the cursor is tilted or not? I think probably you can, but I, I don't know for sure if I've just been swayed by the bias. So come up with the answer in your head, and then I will tell you now it is left tilted. So it's it's not straight up and down. The point is a little bit to the left. The bottom is a little bit to the right. That is how a cursor is. Does that line up with what you think? I'm curious to know. I'm on Twitter at Hank Green. Let me know what you think. Uh, so this fascinates me. Of course, like when I'm hovered over text, you get that little sort of brackety thing that's straight up and down. But everywhere else, or a lot of other places, there's different cursors for different situations. Um, you have this very slightly tilted to the left cursor. And if it was slightly tilted to the right, I would absolutely lose it. I would be like, if somebody hacked into my computer right now and switched it to the side, I would be so disoriented. Like there, there are set neural pathways in my mind that expect this cursor to be a certain way so that I use it a certain way. And it makes me feel like the way to use the cursor is from like the bottom right of the screen to the top left of the screen. Like that's the natural movement. And like going this other way is a less natural movement 
And that makes me think that this is also about a right and left-handed thing. And so left-handed people, is the mouse weird for you? I feel like it might be a little weird for, I'm very curious about this. I'm on Twitter at Hank Green. Please let me know if it's a little weird for you because the way that you move the mouse when you're sort of like, because what our hands do well is sort of like this up into the left motion when you're holding on a mouse up into the right, whereas up into the left is a little more awkward. You don't arc in the same way. Uh, Is this a thing? Am I imagining it? Is it just because I'm used to it? Please let me know. But in answer to your question, yes, we do know who this person was, which is wonderful. So originally it was an arrow that just pointed up, but they didn't have a lot of pixels to work with in the early 80s when they were designing uh, the first graphical graphical user interface at Xerox. Um, And so they made it kind of big and they also made it tilt a little bit to the left, which made it easier to see. So it made it easier to sort of tell which thing, because like the vertical lines didn't work as well to make it actually look like an arrow. And it was, of course, bigger than our mouse cursors are now to to make up for that resolution. And we know who did this. His name is Douglas Engelbart. And we know that uh, because you've heard of the Engelbart tilt. This is the Engelbart tilt, the tilted side of the cursor. Everybody's heard of the Engelbart tilt, which, of course, no one has because I just made it up. But from now on, if we can make that happen, that would be grand. Just everybody out there thinking to themselves, uh, I need to use the phrase Engelbart tilt as as many times in the rest of my life as possible so that it will catch on and we can honor Douglas Engelbart, who is the person who tilted the cursor first to make it easier to see and is the reason that all of our cursors are left tilted. He had no idea the impact he would have on our world when he made that little, he was like, ah, let's just do it to the side a little bit. And now, 40 years later... We're all sitting here with our tilty cursors, with our tilty mouse cursors, still using mice uh, on our computers because it's a fantastic interface. Congratulations, Douglas Engelbart. I don't know what you're up to, uh, but thank you for your contribution to society, which is, of course, the Engelbart tilt. Uh, He died in 2013. Um, But thank you all, (laughs) nonetheless, for all of your hard work. And we honor you and your memory. This next question comes from Memming. And I am doing a lot of sciencey ones, yes, because I don't know how to do the other ones. Who asks, dear Hank and John, how do we know that Alpha Centauri is the closest star besides our own soul? What if there is a star hidden behind a dark curtain that absorbs all of the light? For that dark matter, how do we know that there aren't tiny little lurking black holes that aren't big enough to have sufficient gravitational effect on our solar system, but are closer than Alpha Centauri? Not alone, but far memming. Oh, that's interesting. Not alone, but far. Wow. I don't know. That makes me think about stuff. Anyway, there's not a uh, dark curtain of stuff. Well, there could be. Look, as I have discussed before, there is a number of chickens per light year that could be in space that we wouldn't notice. Like it's, it might be half a chicken. It might be like a, like a, Tenth of a chicken, it might be 20 chickens. I don't know what it is, but there's an amount of chickens per light year that we wouldn't notice. A light year is a very big space. So look, if you want to hypothesize that um, there could just be like a really opaque uh, uh, wall that somebody put in space to intentionally hide a star. Okay, sure. Like you could imagine, for example, a Dyson sphere, which is just a a sphere of material built around a star to capture all of that star's energy. We would not be able to see a Dyson sphere like it would not be warm enough for us to detect it 
in the sky, probably. Though it would probably get pretty hot. So maybe if it was closer than Alpha Centauri, maybe we could detect a Dyson sphere. Certainly farther than Alpha Centauri. There's a definitely a distance at which we couldn't detect it unless we were like pointing the James Webb Space Telescope directly at it, which is very good at detecting infrared light, which is what comes off of warm things. But uh, Alpha Centauri is not that far away. Um, and so the bubble, the sort of space bubble around us, between Alpha Centauri and us, is small enough that we have cataloged it fairly like well. Like We've looked at all the parts of the sky with uh, instruments that are sensitive enough to be able to detect uh, brown dwarfs or... Um, like anything that has fusion going on inside it and would be warm enough that it would be casting off enough um, infrared light that we would be able to uh, detect it. Um, there are a lot of stars, like it's important to remember that there are a lot of stars that are not nearly as bright as uh, our kind of star, the kind that our sun is. And they are a lot harder to detect. And that's why, you know, I used to think, why why are people always saying, like, we don't know how many stars, like the range that they give of the number of stars in the galaxy is really wide. And I'm like, just count. Just count, right? But it turns out, um, and we're getting our our estimates are getting better. But it turns out that there are, it, it's impossible to count because there are a lot of really dim stars. There's also a lot of big clouds of gas. There's a lot of stars that occlude stars, like the like we're looking lengthways through the galaxy. So there's when you know we see those pictures of the Milky Way. There's a lot of stars in there that are just sort of like from in the resolution that we can currently get occluding each other, uh, and that makes it very difficult. Now, you can take stellar densities of certain areas of the sky and sort of add all of those up, and uh, you can make guesses. But it turns out the populations of different kinds of stars are different in different areas of the solar system. So there's different kinds of stars made of different stuff, different brightnesses in different areas. So you can't really uh, do a perfect estimate, and that's why the ranges are still really big. But close in, we have a really good idea of what's going on. Um, and we can also sort of tell, I guess another important part of your question, is that we can tell how far away Alpha Centauri is. We can tell that it's fairly close because uh, this is how they do this. You know, you look up at a star in the sky and you're like, there's no way you can tell how far away that is. Can you just like look by how bright it is? Because that's not going to work. Uh, there's lots of really bright, they're just bigger. Uh, they're farther away, but bigger, and they're brighter. So what you do is um, you... Uh, so at one point in our orbit around the sun, uh, and then the opposite point in our orbit around the sun, we are really far away from that point to the other point. And because of that, you could actually use those two positions that the Earth is in to basically have binocular vision. So two eyes can judge depth by, you know, sort of like you have to have two eyes to have the depth perception. And uh, and so you can do that and basically have two different eyes at two different times, but you can line them up and be like, ah, I see that there's like a shift of how the stars all line up with each other when we're at these two different points in our orbit around the sun. And we can use that to calculate how far away stars are, which is just awesome. It is so good. And then once you have that, you can start to use other kinds of systems because, of course, there's certain stars that you can't use that system for, and there are also uh, stars that are too distant to use that system for. So uh, once you have that sort of starting piece of data, you can use all kinds of other little tricks to infer the distance away that stars are, which is wonderful. And I'm glad that astronomers are always working on that. All right, Tuna, can you play me another kind of music? I'm not going to do just a little break here before... The, the middle point of the episode. I'd like to hear maybe some polka. Did you hit me with some polka? Just like 15 seconds of polka. That'd be great.
All right, this next question comes from Emily, who asks, Dear Hank and John, if a smell is made up of particles created by the thing making the smell, could one hypothetically gather enough of those particles to create a solid smell? Would the solid smell be a copy of the thing, or would be it, or would it be an entirely new thing made up of pure smell? Smelling but not smelly, Emily. I mean, so there's a couple of different uh, worries I have about this idea. First, is the smell a smell if it is uh, not in the air? So if you like take a pure smell and you put it into a bottle. So say, okay, we have an orange. The smell coming off of the orange is all kinds of aromatic compounds. These are molecules that are volatile. And so they go from a liquid state to a gaseous state, and then they enter our noses and bind with receptors in our noses, and our brains interpret that as a smell. This is how it works. It's pretty amazing. So you got that molecule, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Orangeol. So you got orangeol, and then you can take orangeol out of the atmosphere uh, out of the ga- gaseous state and then liquefy it, reliquify it so that it is now uh, not gas anymore. Is that orange all in a bottle? You got like, you know, you got to put a cap on it so it doesn't evaporate. Is that liquid or solid? I don't know what it is. Is that smell if it is not in the atmosphere? I don't think it is. I think that that's not smell anymore. That's not pure smell. That's a that's a compound. It's only smell once it evaporates. Now, second, an important thing to note, Emily, is that not all of the orange, we're not smelling all of the orange. We are smelling individual small components of the orange that are volatile compounds that are designed to be smelly so that animals could find them because the whole point of the fruit was to get the seeds into the animal so that the animal would distribute them farther away from the orange tree or whatever other tree it was. So you eat the seed, you poop the seed out. That's how an orange tree gets to like grow way far away from another orange tree. That That is its sire, its parent. So uh, so the orange has to, has to have a smell to attract the things that that it wants to come eat it. So that is just one component. Like you're not smelling all of the all of the orange. You're not even smelling the the sugary part, for example. That part doesn't the sugar doesn't have a smell. We know this. Uh unless you like do stuff to it to make it sort of molassesy. So like pure sugar, glucose on its own doesn't have a smell. And then you uh you know the the a lot of the cellulose and the rind and and the the little juice pockets like that stuff does so you couldn't like create an orange out of orange smell because the only part of the orange that is orange smell is the smelly part of the orange which is these particular volatile organic compounds like orange is i mean i wouldn't be surprised if it's called orange all it's not it is called lemonine though it's not there's a thing called lemonine it is a colorless liquid aliphatic hydrocarbon classified as a cyclic monoterpene. It's the major component of citrus fruit peels. <laughs> the major component of oil, of the oil in citrus fruit peels. So limonene and a bunch of other stuff and all of them uh, I, I, together make the different good citrus smells. I don't know a lot about how citrus uh, happened or where citrus came from. So I assume that they are all closely related and that they've been domesticated and that their wild ancestor does not look that much like them. But God bless them. Love an orange. So many good oranges out there. Big fan. Like to put it in my soda stream water. Which reminds me that this podcast is brought to you by Lemonine. Lemonine. It's one of those monoterpenes that just makes your life 
a little bit better. This podcast is also brought to you by the Engelbart Tilt. The Engelbart Tilt. You didn't know it existed until today, and now you realize that your life would be a monstrosity without it. Also, this podcast is brought to you by the blanket octopus that we all earlier pretended to be. The blanket octopus that we all earlier pretended to be at peace at the bottom of the sea. And also, this podcast is brought to you by a bent nickel. A bent nickel. That's not a nickel anymore. That's just metal. All right, this question here, all on my own. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> this is brought to you by Lulu, who asks, Dear Ank and John, when I first adopted my dog four and a half years ago, she looked into my full-length mirror, jumped back in surprise, and growled loudly at the other dog she saw there. However, this only happened once, and nowadays, even when I pick her up and look into the mirror with her and ask, who's that? She has no reaction. Does this mean that she understands that there's nothing there? Has she come to the realization that it is her own reflection? Has she accepted that there is just a weird mommy-doggy clone set that only occasionally appears in our house? Mirrors and marveling Lulu. You know, Lulu, I, of course, don't have an answer to this question. Uh, the minds of your dog is, at least at the moment, unknowable. I, You know that there's, a, there's like a, a hat that guys wear sometimes and it says, women want me, fish fear me. On Twitter just the other day, I saw a version of that hat that said, women want me, the minds of fish are un unknowable. And I was just so pleased, wanted that hat very badly, except that I, I cannot wear a hat that says women want me. Even if the next line is the minds of fish are unknowable, I cannot pull off a hat that says women want me. But, but if you think you can pull that hat off, uh, more power to you. Congratulations. So the minds of fish are unknowable. The mind of your dog is less unknowable, like you know things about what your dog thinks. And the more we explore the uh, the sort of cognitive capacity of non-human animals, the more surprised we are to find that they aren't that different from us after all. Now, we don't think that dogs pass what we call the mirror test, where they can look in a mirror and recognize that the thing in the mirror is them, which is one way of testing, not the only way. Some people portray it as the only way, but not the only way of testing, but one way of testing the idea of like self-awareness, self-consciousness. I know that I exist. I Here's what I'll say, and this is not a scientific statement. But one thing I have noticed through my 40 years of life is that we often come up with things that are unique to people, and we say, this is what makes us different. It's tool use. It's opposable thumbs. It's like awareness of self. And then over a period of time, we're like, actually, a lot of things use tools. Actually, a lot of things are aware that they exist and pass the mirror test. Actually, a lot of things have opposable thumbs. Like There isn't a thing that makes us super ultimately unique. Um, and, and I think that, like, the, obviously, there is a capability that we have that, that sort of, like, launched a different way of being. Um, and I think that that capability is pretty clearly, at this point, not the ability to, but the scale at which we communicate information. So dogs communicate information to each other all the time. They do that with uh, body language and facial expressions and noises and pheromones and, and scents. Um, but we communicate information extraordinarily, like uh, in a very high bandwidth way. That is the thing. And so th this is not a matter of, of like a thing that we have. It is the scale at which we have it. And the, you know, the, 
biggest sort of advancement that we had in that that uh, field, though not certainly not the the last one, is what we're doing right now, where I'm talking and you're listening and you're understanding the words that that are uh, hitting your ears. That all these weird noises that I'm making, that my mouth is working really hard to construct in a sort of ballet that uh, just sort of neurologically is one of the most complex things that we do. That is our. That was like our great leap forward. Um, and so talking is a big deal uh, and and words in symbolic a symbolic language are a big deal. That, and like, but I think that all these things, like all communication of information, uh, self-awareness, being able to notice yourself in the mirror, all, non-human animals definitely do all these things. I would not put it past dogs to actually know that that is them in the mirror. But just to not think that it matters much in a way that would allow them to pass the mirror test. So like you put a, like a blue spot on the dog's face and then they're like, oh, there's a blue spot on my face. And they turn to look at it like the way an elephant would. Maybe a dog is like, oh, yeah, I don't care. That's not a big deal to me. I'm moving on. I got other things to do. I don't need to be looking at myself. That's not a, that's not of interest. Um, I don't have it's not that I'm not self-aware. It's that I'm not self-conscious. Like I don't like I don't care. It's not a big deal. I can look however I want. I sometimes eat poop. Like I'm a dog. I don't need to worry about a blue spot on my face. But this is all I I don't freaking know. I don't know what the situation is, but what I I do feel strongly in my heart is that animals are a lot more complex than we often give them credit for. We like to think that we are super special, but it is not it, it t- generally tends to be that this is not a matter of um one a thing that we have that other animals don't, but just the degree to which we have those things. So maybe dogs are self-aware. They're just a little bit less self-aware than the average human. And there are lots of humans. I've met them. Some of them are out there making weird decisions that impact me and the rest of the world right now that I don't think are particularly self-aware. Uh, at least in some ways, they're not aware of the sort of like dogs might be looking at some people and saying, hey, I think you maybe own enough complicated companies. You don't have to have another one. But self-awareness, it's uh, we only have access to it sometimes. All right. This question is uh, surprisingly related to that last one. It comes to us from Felicia, who asks, dear Hank and John. We all know that animals pee on stuff to claim it as theirs. Recently, a badger has been hanging out right next to my house, and it got me thinking, if I pee on my house, will the badger realize that it is my territory and leave it alone? I would very much like to get rid of the badger, and this seems like it could be an easy solution. Would it work like the day, Felicia? Felicia, first of all, maybe we could trade, because I want a badger friend. I, I don't, I've never met a badger and I know that we have them here uh, in Montana. I, I've never come across one. I get the feeling maybe, Felicia, you are not from America because it seems like in the United Kingdom, like the European or in, in Europe, they're the so we have, there's North American badgers. That's what we have here. There's also European badgers. They are related. They are not identical. And they're, they're cute. But I think that the European ones maybe are a little bit cuter. But look, we don't need to pass judgment. It's not here or there. I get the impression that an Amer- like a North American badger is like, I would rather not be anywhere near you. Whereas, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like in Europe and the UK, you have badgers like raccoons, where they're just like out and about, like getting in your business, like going through the trash. I, I've never seen a badger. We have lots of them here. I've never seen a badger and I've been outside a lot. I've seen a lot. Of, I've seen a moose. I've seen grizzly bears. I've seen black bears. I've seen 
seen a lot, like I've seen lynx. I've seen bobcats. I've seen a lot of animals. Never seen a badger. They're just, they did. Apparently they're around, but I've never seen them. So I, I get the impression. This is just a guess. This is a different kind of badger experience. Cause like they're weird enough for me that I'm like, please bring a badger around. I want to see one now. Uh, so if, if a trade is out of the question, because there's a big ocean between us, then I, I, I'm pretty sure that I have to break the news to you that peeing on your house isn't going to help. I don't know for sure because I don't know that anybody's tested this specifically on badgers, but I do know one thing. Deer uh, are a lot more timid in my imaginings than badger and have a lot more reason to fear humans, uh, at least you know from my experience of what happens uh, to deer by humans in Montana. And uh, deer are not afraid of human pee smell, which I think if I was a deer, I would be. I'd be like, ah, Scott, got to get away from that. That doesn't seem good. I've seen what they do. I've 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 heard about what happens when people are around. They carry those sticks that make loud noises and then you just fall over dead. I think I would be afraid of human pee smell. But if it's not scaring a deer away, I can't imagine it's going to scare a badger away. And I thought that it might scare deer away because I saw in a movie once a person who peed on like hunting sites to try and uh, because they, they were like a, like didn't want hunting to happen uh pro deer person and uh and that didn't that didn't that that worked in the movie but it, it turns out it doesn't work in real life so now you know that at least and i also learned that today but uh i feel like if it's not gonna work on a deer it's probably not gonna work on a badger i don't know how to get a badger to leave you alone it's definitely not a thing that i'm an expert in because in america in my experience anyway badger leave you alone way more than you'd like them to like i like like maybe just like 20 feet away in a nice way where i can like see a badger being cute and like hey, if it had like kids with it like babies that would be great i would I would absolutely sign up for that experience. All right, before we head into the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I'm going to have Tuna play a little bit more music for you. This is going to be um, just some heavy metal. Here's some heavy metal. This week at Mars News, the Perseverance rover has given us the best image so far of a solar eclipse on Mars. On April 2nd, one of Mars' moons, Phobos, traveled across the sun, casting its shadow onto the Martian surface. The eclipse lasted about 40 seconds, which is quite quick. Phobos is trucking across the sky. Uh, we've known that the, that uh, Mars has eclipses for a long time. We've been watching them since 2004, when Spirit and Opportunity rovers took the first images of one. And since then, other rovers like the Curiosity have taken pictures too. But Perseverance has the Mastcam Z camera. It's the first to take color pictures of the eclipse. And uh, it has a solar filter that allowed more detail of the moon's shadow to show more clearly. Uh, because it's not it doesn't do like a full, like on Earth, the moon can cover the entire sun. Phobos isn't big enough to do that. It's not or not close enough. We'll have to be one of the other one of those two things. Um, so all that means uh, that this is the f- clearest footage we've ever had of a, of a solar eclipse, which is probably why you saw it on Twitter. If you were paying attention, if you were on Twitter that day, because it was all over the place, at least all over my feed. I guess I do follow um, some specific people who are maybe more likely to post about Mars news because of who I am and what I like. And in news from AFC Wimbledon, um, it's 
Look, I'm not going to call anything yet because I don't know exactly how all this works. AFC Wimbledon is currently three points uh, into the relegation zone. Like they can't get out without getting three points. I think that that is impossible, but I don't know for sure because that's who I am. Uh, I'm not I'm not that guy. Um, They had a game on Saturday that they tied. They did get a goal. They tied their game the game before that. They also got a goal and tied that game. They lost the game before that. They have one more game to play against Accrington Stanley. Accrington Stanley. And uh, so that's happening next Saturday at 5.30 in the morning in Mountain Time. So I don't know that I'm going to catch that one. But uh, I think that if they won that game, they still could not make it out of the relegation zone. So I do feel somewhat bad then I'm the one breaking this news to you. Maybe it's a little bit easier on John to not have to deliver this particular bit of news. The team at AFC Wimbledon, the fans, the the spirit is alive. Um, these people care more about their club than, than uh, anyone possibly could about any other club. They care a great deal. They will make, they will persevere, but it may be that this is the first time AFC Wimbledon is going to drop down uh, a league in in its since it has been reformed, um, and it has been a tremendous story. Uh, so as as you may have heard and expected, the uh, the the miracle that we were hoping for, uh, well, sometimes miracles don't happen. In fact, usually, and it looks like AFC Wimbledon is gonna is is gonna be at the uh, if if I'm understanding things correctly, which I may not be. They are they they may be headed next year into. The other league, which I can't remember the name of. I apologize. But AFC Wimbledon will rise again. They will play great games. Their new stadium kicks butt. They will have cool new people on their team. And John will not stop caring about them. I will not stop caring about them. You will not stop caring about them. We will continue to love our uh, beloved Wombles, possibly. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was... Uh, surprisingly quite fun, actually. I hope that you liked it. Uh, I have no idea if you did, but I will say, John and I will be back for a normal Dear Hank and John next week. We've talked about it. We've planned it. (laughs) You know, he feels a little bit bad, which is ridiculous. He shouldn't. He's doing really cool, great stuff, and I'm very excited for him. And uh, I also also feel bad because I was gone for a long time, though I will say I got a lot done, and I'm very happy to have had a little bit of that time free and also went on a lovely vacation. So thank you, John, for filling in for me while I was out. Um, this podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish, who we have really been putting through the ringer with these episodes. So thank you, Tuna, for uh, for the extra effort being put in. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Dimitri Chakravarty, who also helped me a lot with this particular episode. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great and as they say in our hometown, don't forget to be awesome.